Hey SEOs and content marketers, say goodbye to crazy spreadsheet mashups and experience unprecedented connectivity between your SEO planning and reporting data. Introducing Audience Key, technology for keyword mapping, content brief automation, and rank tracking that form an SEO strategy system providing unparalleled feedback loops between planning, reporting, and optimization activities. Put your time and energy into strategy, not data upkeep. Visit audiencekey.com and apply for a free trial today. It's the 28th of September, 2023. Um, one shopping week till my birthday, incidentally. I'll be like 115 as of one week from now. This is Jim Hedger from Digital Always Media, Christine Schackinger from Sites Without Walls, and we're going to have a really fun one today. We're uh, joined by Eric Salvaggio. He's the uh, founder of the Algorithmic uh, Resistance Research Group, a loose uh, knit collection of artists, activists, and researchers who use AI to under use AI to understand and critique AI. He's coming up in a few minutes. It's going to be a really fun interview. Totally looking forward to it. But first, a couple Google things, a couple Twitter things, uh, some Open AI things, and Google Bard things. Um, first of all, finally, once and for all, as of uh, 3 a.m. Eastern this morning. The helpful content update is done, rolled out, um, and let the whining begin. Um, <laughs> it's already begun. <laughs> hey, hey, everybody. <laughs> yeah, apparently there's a lot of people that have been um, not happy with Google. It feels like uh, a lot of people who didn't suffer through Penguin and Panda back in the day uh, are, are getting their first taste of a super aggressive algorithm devaluation. Well, this is a super um, aggressive algorithm. I'm not sure it's a devaluation. Again, this is, search is a zero-sum game, eh? So if somebody gets promoted, you get the effectively you get. Oh, devalued. sure, but um, they're not complain. But they're not complaining. Indeed, <laughs> they um, got promoted. They're not complaining. So the ones complaining are the ones that got superly demoted, like ninety percent. Super happy, super happy, humble, Greg. You don't hear me complaining. Um, <laughs> but. My websites have followed the basic advice, I dare say, that we've been giving here on Webcology, um, which is keep it simple. Um, make it really easy. Be, uh, you know, the helpful content update was written for a reason um, to push website or, or webmasters into, um, you know, making content for users, not for Google's algorithms. Um, don't try to tick all the boxes, like I was saying earlier this week. That's that's bad SEO, but opening your content, making your website accessible, um, making the website usable fast and giving a good user experience, that's also a form of helpful content. Content isn't just images and text and video. It's also experience from Google's point of view. So I'm, I know I'm quite happy right now, but yeah, I've been reading uh, uh, so much um, angst and anger out there that people are demanding Google roll it back. Yeah, well, I can say the search results right now are really, really horrible. Like I'm getting so much irrelevancy, but that started before the HCU. Like I'm getting stuff from 1995 showing up in searches. So it's, it's very bad right now. But, uh, but you know, it's like when Penguin came out, uh, people, uh, now would just think it was links, but actually at the time it was about anything pretty much black hat. So over-optimization was a big thing. And it kind of sounds like this may have a little tinge of 
penguin from back in the day in that aspect. Because I hear people are yelling at John, you know, you give us advice to do this stuff and we did it and now we're being penalized for it. Um, not that it's penalty because that's a manual action, but you know what I'm saying? So, uh, but yeah, so people, people are definitely not happy. Uh, and also I did see people that have AI content sites. Uh, they got hit as well. So not all of them, but there's some people like who had a, like a stack of them, you know, like, yeah, about half of mine got hit really hard. So yeah, you got to make it useful, but also I always want to be careful though, saying like, just make it for users. Cause there are, re there are requirements Google has for how you put together your site and your content and all that stuff. So you have to follow what Google tells you, but you also have to make sure your content's good for users first. So. Well, indeed, um, you have to build your bicycle or car to um, conform to the standards of, of the road as well. Um, that's exactly. just sort of how it works. But if you can do that, you can make a vehicle to get people from point A to point B to point Z and back again. Um, uh, okay, so what we do know, and Christine, I owe you an apology for last show. You were absolutely right. This is a... Um, uh, an algorithm that can affect you for months on end, and there's a sandbox. Yep. So, um, uh, shortly after the after last week's show, I went and looked it up and found that exact document I asked you to send me. So, all apologies. Yeah. You were absolutely right. Um, Jim went and found it because Christine had COVID and was very very sick. <laughs> so, if, yeah. Um, yeah. If you so, found that your content has um, been devalued or somebody else's content has been revalued above yours, you might be in the doghouse for a month, two months or more. Because even after you fix the content, Google's constantly churning. This this algorithm isn't done. It may have finished been rolling out and been injected into the system, but now it's Everflux. It's gonna be constantly rolling and you know, considering websites against the um, elements and factors that new elements and factors in, in this algo, um, and in the helpful algo. So even though Google's still rescoring your website over and over and over again against all other relevant websites, it might take you two or three months because they want to see you change your content to make it, again, more helpful to, to, to users. But they want to see that it sticks. So you can't just change your content, um, get out of the doghouse, get your good rankings back again, and then, um, you know, maybe degrade the content experience. Um, Google wants to see it last for a few months before it reassigns uh, the placements you used to have. Yeah, and so people, um, are, if they're not aware, the helpful content update is applied to your site based on the amount of content that Google found not helpful. They're not very clear on what not helpful means, but uh, so that means if they found, say, 10% of your page is not helpful, it is a site-wide devaluation, but you will only experience a small uh, drop. Now, small could be 30% but it won't be 90%. But if they found 90, 100% of your content or even above maybe 50% to be not helpful, you might show an 80 to 90% drop. So, and those are those are just rough estimates. Not Google said 80, 90%. What is this? Yeah. So Google can say they did a proportional response? Yes, yeah, it's proportional, oh. yeah. Christine, so, where, where do you hide a dead body? <laughs> On page two of search results. Nobody will exactly, find it there. Exactly, well, now, response, right. <laughs> So the good thing about this one, though, is like the core updates hard, right? Because I do a lot of core update recovery and the core update could be any of the core ranking signals. And there's a lot of them. And then you have to analyze the site and you have to find out where things dropped and you have to see what's wrong and blah, 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 blah. In this case, it's your content, like your content. They don't like it. And 
you go and find which pages drop the most because those are most likely the ones that they really hate. And then go look at what you how you wrote that content. Go to the helpful content guidelines. They actually have a guideline and a ranking system, which is awesome because like when we got Penguin like a decade ago, we didn't have like any Google Docs to tell us what to do. And they tell you what to check for. So check for those things and then rewrite your content and have a human write your content. Do not use AI. Because if your content, whether it was human or AI written the first time, wasn't good enough to make it through this update, your AI content isn't going to be the thing. John, over and over and over again for the last month, has been making comments about AI content just being rehashed and how it's a weight on your site and how it's a dead weight on your site. It's like Michael Phelps with a 50-pound weight and expecting him to win the Olympics. So if you have an HCU, the good thing is it's easy to diagnose and it's easy-ish to fix. We don't know exactly know what they're looking for, but we know that the content you have isn't it. So then go to the guidelines and add what you don't have. Okay. So speaking of advice, Google ain't going to stop giving it. Um, <laughs> even even if many people who receive it misinterpret it and uh, go to the, go to the, go uh, writing off the short end of a long or the long end of a short pier. That was funny. <laughs> stop giving us advice. Eh? Um, <laughs> for real um in in, in uh, twitter x or twixter um some seos are so frustrated by the, the the helpful content update that they're actually telling google screw you you gave us this advice now what um for newer seos um this has been going on for years like this <laughs> just, just yeah normal. And, and the, the, the quote that got John to say something was, um, I can't, I think it's Egadzooks, Egadzooks? Yes. Uh, Ethan Mertz uh, to John said, it, it, it is some, somewhat amusing that the made for Google content has become an issue at Google, as if you all weren't the primary driving force. Well, I agree, a little self-reflection wouldn't hurt. And Sean's like, yes, it's also a little awkward that we're writing how to do well in Google, explaining algorithms, giving technical tips. But even with that, a minority that abuses that, it doesn't mean we should stop helping sites get the most out of search. Sometimes we forget the web is more than MFA. And you and I both think that means what? Again? Made for AdSense. I, got, I think it's got to be made for AdSense. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, but it's like anything. It's like back when Penguin came out, you know, people got hit for over-optimizing, you know, keyword stuffing and too many internal links, things like that. And so it sounds like there may be some similar components uh, in this one where you you made your, your content artificial and your site artificial, not helpful. Yeah, I want to get, we've got a couple more stories to go through, a little bit on Twixter and a little bit on uh, on AI, but we have uh, um, Eric Salvaggio from the uh, Algorithmic uh, Resistance Research Group waiting in the uh, in the waiting room, so want to get through fast. Um, we're moving into the 2024 elections. Um, I'm pretty sure Eric's going to have a little bit to say on the potential of major deepfakes um, gumming up the electoral process, especially like through social media. And um, yeah, what does uh, the um, intrepid leader of Twixter, uh, I'm sorry, Twitter X, uh, Twixter? I like, do, Twixter. Um, I like Twixter. This week, Elon Musk has fired the entire election integrity team ahead of the, uh, the 2024 election. Furthermore, X slash Twitter has scrapped the feature that lets users report misleading information. Happy, yeah, happy election season, eh? Yeah, and not just our elections. These are, there are 40 elections they were monitoring. 
and the one in Australia that's coming up. So this isn't just U.S. elections. This is around the world. And apparently the right wing accounts like lives of TikTok were pressuring Musk to fire Rod- Roderick's. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right. Roderick's, um, the lawyer who was putting the team together for the election integrity team. And so he fired him. And so now there is nobody watching election integrity at Twixter. I really like Twixter. I think that should be the new name. <laughs> uh, for as long as the platform stays aloft, certainly. That's, um, yeah. I don't know what to say about that. That's a, yeah, uh, that's we, just... we saw what happened in, in uh, 2016 and 2020, and we've seen what's happened with just the rampant uh, disinformation in our uh, electoral and social systems. It's um... bad. It's really bad. And Twitter actually came out this week. Um, and a new report as being the worst for disinformation out of all the platforms by far. Like last time it was like, you know, by a little, but no, this time it was like by far. Yeah. Okay. Um, really quickly, a couple of things on uh, AI before we get like our actual AI expert coming in to talk to us about AI. Yes, Open AI connected again. Chat GPT relaunches Browse with Bing this time better than ever because they're respecting robots text protocols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sites now blocking not just uh, OpenAI, but Common Crawl, which is out of Europe and one of the main databases. So I tried to post all of them in a LinkedIn post. And I ran out of characters to take a bunch out. <laughs> so, so there's a huge, huge number of sites that are now blocking them. But uh, yeah, so. Uh, OpenAI is connected to the, the web again. Uh, the reason they disconnected it last time is through Bing is because people are using it to bypass paywalls. Um, I, I have a feeling uh, they don't know what they're in for because you and I both know that the ones that are going to be trying to break it are the like affiliate gaming people or the <laughs> casino people or and uh, we'll see we'll see if they manage to do that because you know white on white text works in in open air, at least it did last time before they cut it off. So, well, if 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 I'm blocking through robots text, um, then assumably the uh, AI bot is just avoiding my website altogether. It comes at the domain level, sees robot text, good, says, "Oh, I'm not welcome here," and and buggers off. Except we know that both Bing and Google, their regular regular search bots. Well, they respect robots text, kind of, sort of. They also are absolutely adamant, do it at the page level. If you're going to block us, block us at page level to guarantee it. And I really wish um, OpenAI and Bard and Anthropic and and et al. would would offer a meta tag, a simple, you know, a a simple uh, no index, no follow tag. Um, Do not, do not come here. Now, that's not to say, I think it's going to be a really interesting debate moving forward about who should and should not allow um, access. Yeah, just, just to name a few right now that are blocking GPT bot, Amazon mm-hmm. Core, New York Times, The Guardian, Shutterstock, WikiHow, CNN, Science Direct, USA Today, Healthline, uh, Scribed, WebMD, Business Insider, Dictionary, Reuters, Washington Post, NPR, CBS News, and it goes on and on and on. So there's there's a lot of uh, especially news sites, but I, I understand that because people are telling uh, ChatGPT to write in the style of certain authors, and then they're creating books and putting them on Amazon and selling them. Yep. So yeah, so there is really good reasons. I haven't found a really good reason yet. And we can ask Eric this to let it 
do your site because a lot of people in our industry will say, well, because I want my, my it mentioned or I want it this. And it's like, but it's not a search engine. So, no, I, you know, what? Yeah. I think I can tell you one good reason. This actually came from from a guest we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it made a lot of sense to me. Um, if I'm writing original content that's in my voice, if I'm writing news content or if I'm writing proprietary content, I absolutely do not want AI um, training on that content. But say I write a manual for activists on how to canvas your neighborhood. I don't care if I make any money off this manual. Oh, I just that's want true. people to yeah. build better communities. And moreover, given information that's out there that will be available to the AI, I know that mine is pure of heart. I definitely want it to be informing what's going to be informing others in this aspect. But if it's something that like, you know, is paying my bills or that is my proprietary gig, like my own personal writing style, I do not want um, AI to be able to replicate that because I've worked for years to create that. Exactly. Exactly. There was an author who um, spent 20 years writing a book that was then used in training and then people used it to write books for in the style of that author and then put the name on it and put it on Amazon. And, uh, you know, they're very angry because they spent 20 years developing the writing and the logic and the style and everything. And now that's all been ripped off. And so uh, I definitely, I think if you do have uh, real authors, authorship, you know, proprietary voices, you definitely don't want it uh, training on your, on your stuff so that they can just be uh, replicated um, in the style of, so I think you're right. Yeah, but I agree. If you have something like what you're talking about, you might want that. That um, I, I hate to say information because it's not information retrieval. It's just training it on the best patterns to return. Sure. But, but, but if you have but, something that explains why the sky is blue that you have no yeah. real attachment to, I'm not making money off this, but the sky is blue because of reflection of light off. I don't have no problem with AI training on that. Right. Given the given the myth science, it's going to be training on, you know. <laughs> I am going to be fascinated, though. You know, in our industry, the black adders. Oh yeah. Those are the ones that are going to be breaking it and fast, and so it'll be interesting to see like how they do that. So we'll find out in a month or so, I'm sure. Actually, you know what? We might find out in a moment or so because while we're talking about um, ethics and um, what you can and cannot do with AI and where these boundaries are to begin with, maybe we ought to talk with somebody who's actually pushed a lot of them. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Eric Salvaggio is an artist and researcher who's used generative techniques to create music with mushrooms. Okay. I love that. As well as, I love that. As well as music, images, and videos always aimed at exploring and subverting the logic of emerging technologies. Linking art making to research, Salvaggio sees creative exploration as a form of ethical hacking, a way of understanding complex systems in ways that are more broadly accessible. He's founder and organizer of AARG exclamation mark, the algorithmic research resistance research group, a loose knit collection of artists, activists, and researchers who use AI to critique and understand artificial intelligence. Incidentally, I took that bio straight off of the algorithmic uh, resistance research group just like ai would have done for me had i asked it to <laughs> eric thank you for joining us and welcome to webcology arg hi thanks arg indeed i guess that that is that's the acronym what is arg yes it's uh arg a-r-r-g always with that exclamation mark um and the exclamation mark can stand for whatever anyone wants um we are as as you described. It was a it's a loose knit 
group of artists and researchers and activists. And it kind of started from looking around when this generative art stuff started hitting the mainstream. Um, we were kind of seeing a lot of this work that was just kind of um, using it exactly as was intended. It was kind of running it off. Uh, these things don't have instruction manuals, but a lot of people were just kind of using them to create images and sharing them. And, and this was all great and wonderful. And I, I think there's some beautiful images and a lot of like people have found some space for creativity in that. But we really were thinking, you know, there's a lot going on behind these scenes of these uh, pictures and how they're made. And we don't exactly agree with that. And we really wanted to think about ourselves as artists who were using these as tools to talk about some of those issues, talk about some of those ethical concerns that we had, um, and make work that kind of challenged the very nature of these systems. So we started talking to each other, like, like I said, it's pretty loose, um, but we, we found that there was kind of a network of people who were thinking critically about these systems um, to various extents, right? There are some people who absolutely really don't like them. Um, there are some people who are just kind of critical, want to push the boundaries of them and see what they can do, but want to think about the ethics. Um, and we kind of came together and started saying, let's start making work that can push the boundaries, push this conversation into the main mainstream using art and making uh, art on our own terms, as opposed to what these systems are kind of built and designed to, uh, to do. So we call it creative misuse. We we go into the systems <laughs> and we figure out um, what are some ways to kind of mess with them. Uh, none of it is really nefarious, uh, though certainly if someone's out there that has a nefarious uh, purpose, we're interested in talking to you. Can't say that we would uh, agree or sign up, but I'd be just be curious to know what you're doing. <laughs> um, but we're kind of pushing it aesthetically. Like what are the pictures that we can make? Um, without, you know, undermining things or making making dangerous um, products or, or making these products into something dangerous, right? So we're, we're thinking ethically and we're just trying to be creative in a different way. Just to, just to confirm, um, first off, you're a, uh, an instructor or professor at the Rochester Institute of Technology. So you're not a techno-Luddite, right? You're not I trying am... to smash the machine. <laughs> Well, you know, the Luddites, <laughs> the Luddites had an interesting point. Um, the Luddites were basically saying, let's negotiate the way these technologies are deployed. And to that extent, I would say, yes, I am a Luddite. Um, because I do think people should have a say in what these technologies do and how they come into our lives. So I am kind of interested in pushing back. I am not, um, you know, advocating for a complete return to sort of uh, 1600s agrarianism. Uh, you know, we don't all need farms, though certainly it could, could be nice. I like fresh tomatoes as much as anyone else. Um, <laughs> but really what I, what I would advocate for is let's have these conversations and include more people in these conversations around the ways that these technologies get sort of handed to us as if they're a given. Um, so yeah, Luddite, maybe. <laughs> well, let's get to the um, very, very beginning. And if you can give us just a really short, basic explanation, how are how do AI image models work? Um, how does generative uh, uh, art or generative images, how are they created? Um, Sure. Yeah. 
Um, so by coincidence, I just finished uh, a class on on this subject, introducing students to diffusion models and generative AI. And one of the things I find really helpful is to orient people and say, basically, imagine you're on a camping trip, which is usually not where technical explanations of AI systems start. But imagine you're at a camping trip and you've got this beautiful clear sky and there's all these stars up overhead and you're looking and you're gazing at the stars and someone who's with you says, oh, look, it's it's the Big Dipper. And you look up and you can't quite see the Big Dipper, right? Um, but then they're telling you, no, it's right there. It's right there. And you say, oh, yeah, yeah, there it is. There's the Big Dipper. And you see it because you were told that it was there. Mm -hmm. These systems are doing that, but they're doing it with a JPEG that is just absolute noise. So it starts with this chaotic explosion of pixels and it starts looking for the patterns that you tell it are there. So is it a flower? If you tell it, here's a flower, it's going to look in, at this noise and it's going to try to trace a really basic outline of a flower in the noise based on these 5 billion images that it's seen online with a text description that says flowers, right? So, so, so it literally starts with everything. Everything has been taught on, it sees, and it's trying to figure its way through based on how you've prompted how you prompt it. Your prompting okay. is kind of steering it through this um, flotsam of debris, of image debris, uh, in, a, in a vast sea. Um, some people might say it's like the garbage islands, uh, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's all the images that we make, uh, that humans make. It's not everything. It's just what's sampled by this data set called Leon 5B, which is out there. Um, and that is these images with their text descriptions. And it breaks these images down into noise and it remembers how that noise came about and the basic shapes that survived the noisier they got. So like flowers is a great example. These are these bright, bold petal stems, right? Bright red leaves um, or, or um, petals. And you can imagine this noise breaking the image down, but the, those red petals, because they're so dense, they kind of stay. They stay longer than something really kind of minor, like a minor detail, like even like the little stem on a rose. So the stem on a rose is going to disappear as you add noise or subtract information. Um, but those petals stay, and that becomes this basic shape that it can sort of generalize from. And so when you ask it for a flower, it has this rough idea, and I call it a stereotype, and I, I think that's an important thing to remember, that it's kind of a stereotype of a flower or a cat um, and then it's regenerating that image from that mental model that it has of this rough contour of the shape of billions of flowers or billions of cats. Okay, so I'm a artist. I'm a, uh, a painter. Mm -hmm. um, I make uh, work that hangs in a gallery and hopefully sells to um, an institution or a collector. They pay money to that gallery. The gallery pays me. Um, I buy a sandwich and pay my rent. Yes. Congrats. A, okay. So there <laughs> I need a limited, a limited, um, rather exclusive audience to make a living. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm a webmaster. When I mm -hmm. put when I put something online, my very first thought is I want as many people in the world as possible to see it. It's, I, I, I want to make it unlimited access. Yeah. Will the... Now, I don't know why I would create um, a painting in this day and age if it was just going to go into the corpus of um, 
of, of, of uh, generative uh, image creation um, of the knowledge that the generative AI is, is training on and be part of um, other creations, uh, AI creations. Mm -hmm. um, is this going to limit people sharing their art or opening their art? Is, is there a way you can sh keep your art out of? Um, I mean, there's a zillion questions that, 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 that come from that concept. Yeah. Um, is there a robots.txt for art? Yeah. Right? Um, I think that's a great question. And it's one of the core questions we're asking about, because if you're an artist and you're making these paintings and you're uploading them to your website, you're actually building a data set. And I don't know if anyone here has ever built a data set, but it is a pain, right? Collecting data, uh, putting that data together, labeling that data, all of that stuff is a massive pain. Um, and this is why these companies are kind of just grabbing it from the web, right? They don't want to build a data set of 5 billion uh, images. They don't want to take 5 billion photographs of, uh, of 100 million things. So as an artist, as you described, um, sharing becomes pretty like risky because you're building this data set, you're not being compensated. And yes, on the one hand, these images are going in alongside billions of images. And it's like this old thing they used to say about voting, right? One vote doesn't count, but a hundred million one votes count. It's like that with the data set. One person's paintings is not gonna make a huge difference, but without everybody's paintings, you don't have any, you don't have any sense of what painting looks like in these models. And so I think it is really important if we wanna encourage an open web where people feel comfortable about sharing things, that we do start having conversations about things like data rights. Like if I upload something, what is, what do, am I giving it away? You shouldn't have to feel like you are. And, and data rights is a missing piece of the conversation. We talk a lot about copyright, um, but what about data rights? What about sharing poetry or the things we write online? Why is that suddenly up for grabs? So there are tools um, to get to your specific question. There are some people working on tools that allow you to actually um, make it so that when the machine looks at your image and starts breaking it down into noise, it only sees Van Gogh paintings, which I think is really funny. <laughs> okay. um, that's, that's called Glaze, if you want to look it up. Oh, um, Glaze, yes, I know yeah. um, And there's also things like um, on the user end, being able to go into a data set and say, don't use my images. Um, spawning has a tool that they're working on with um, Stable Diffusion that you can go in and say that. And even Dolly 3, which was just announced, uh, has an on-site opt-out option. The problem with these is you got to know that it's out there. You have to know that AI is even doing this with your images, right? So it's not really accessible for everyone right now. And so there's still some critiques to come of it. So how do you get the conversation going? How do you... Um... I mean, when a when AI was introduced to publicly back in November 2022, nobody wanted to talk. They just wanted to play. Absolutely. How, how do you get them talking about their rights, their um, the uh, the implications towards the future, um, uh, creative copyright, etc. So that's one of the nice things about making AI art that is um, kind of adversarial to AI art is that it really confuses people and they come up and I joke that I often speak to audiences that start with their arms crossed, waiting for me to say the thing 
um, that lets them know that I'm on their side or against them. And when you are presenting AI art that is actually critical of AI, their arms untangle and they start saying like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? How does this make sense? And that's a great opportunity. And we're not hostile to people who use these things, right? We are we are people who use these things, but we are also asking those questions and those things are not mutually exclusive. And so hopefully if people are coming up and they're saying like, the stuff you're making is really cool, how do you do it? We start having those conversations that actually the way I do it is by thinking about the parts of the system that I think are unethical that I want to avoid and then designing ways of making art that avoids that. And that opens up the conversation to say, we have a choice in the way we use these things and we can navigate and negotiate the way we use these things on our own. And I think just set, starting from that place and letting people set their own terms is a really helpful place to start. Well, I mean, one could argue the easiest way to avoid uh, AI in art is to avoid using AI in art. Um, mm -hmm. does, um, I mean, you can get into the, to the, uh, really, really subjective question. Does this like help or limit one's creativity? Um, I imagine mm. it, it does both at the same time, but the thing that, that, that interests me is, um, how artists feel about competing with, or, um, working in the same environment as AI generated or AI enhanced art earlier this year, a, um, an AI enhanced image, or I think an AI generated image, um, won a major art competition. Mm -hmm. How's that going to affect, um, again, in a world that is interested in playing before talking, how do you think it's going to affect um, image and uh, people's relationships with, with imagery and art moving into the future? Well, one of the things I hope it does is encourage people to think about process and to think about creativity, not just as having an image that has been made, because you can make a lot of these images. And ultimately I find it um, kind of unsatisfying because they're creating these images and you don't really have a lot of control over them. There are a lot of people who say the prompt negotiates, You know, they can think about prompts all day. But ultimately, you're kind of getting um, random images. And you can shape that and you can steer that. And there's some fun to be had with that. But it is that process of that thinking about your own relationship to creativity and what you're learning through the struggle of making something. Um, drawing is kind of the go-to for making art, right? Like, And I actually have never been someone who drew. I've always used computers. But to me, it's about getting into a flow state, getting into figuring out what I'm trying to make and how to make the image that is in my head or the express the idea that's in my head, as opposed to saying, what happens if I do this, seeing something and choosing it. And I think we can ask complicated questions about what creativity is and what we want it to be and what we want to learn through the process of creativity. Is it rewarding? to get an image, right? Or is it actually more rewarding to go in and take pieces of these um, generated images and, and tear certain parts of them out and paste them together in Photoshop and just mess with them, right? How do we get our hands dirty with the this as like a raw material as opposed to a finished product? And that's, I think, the, the illusion that these things create by making such beautiful images is like, you're done, you finished this, 
But actually, to me, it's like, this is the starting point. Now we get these beautiful images to start from, and we get to rip them up and make something with them, as opposed to saying, well, look, we've made something. So I think it's about that position of, of how are we creative? What does it mean to be creative? And I think ultimately generating images and seeing those beautiful images, it gets boring after a while. And I think people are going to look for that additional level of challenge. And I don't begrudge anyone who's starting out and making these pictures and being amazed at what they can make. I see this just today with my students as they got their hands on these tools. They are, they, it's really cool, right? But after a couple months, you, it kind of loses its charm and you start asking, well, what can I do next? And that's where the fun really starts. And that's where the creative expression really begins too, I think. And I think more people are going to start seeing that for themselves. I hope so anyway. You know, it's something uh, that I found fascinating about what you said, because, uh, well, two things. One, I love to do photography, landscape mm -hmm. photography. So I don't think anyone wants an AI generated image of the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. so I think I'm safe there. But when you talk about the struggle of creativity, so I went to art school and, uh, you know, when you are um, putting something, so I do out of the found is what I call it. So I put on music and I just throw things on the paper or whatever. And and I'd look for images in it that my brain saw and then I'd render them out. Mm. But there's always this point when I would get halfway through and I'd be like, oh, I hate this so much. It's so awful. Mm. It's so bad. And I would stop and I would like throw it away. And then one mm. time I was on deadline and I couldn't do that. I had to, I had to work through it. I had to push through it. And I, and I push through all night and I get done and it's something that I never even thought would come out of it. And also there was part of me in it. So when I put it up in art school, you have to put everything on the wall and they have people evaluate it at the end of the class. Right. And someone, people were seeing things in it that actually were things I was struggling with personally that mm -hmm. I didn't realize I was struggling with personally. Mm -hmm. So it came, it came out in the art and that struggle. So I think you're right. Cause when people ask me, like, Christine, it's the same as like when you were in art school and you just like you studied all the artists and then you just kind of mimic them. And I'm like, that's not how it works. Right. You had such a great you had such a great explanation there. It's really that process of flow. And if people don't know what flow is, it means you just get into the moment. There is no sense of time. You have to keep going until you get to the resolution point and and then you you're done. You know, that's hard to say as an artist to so know when you're done. Mm. You stop and then you've created something which is not the same as putting a bunch of words together in a prompt and having the AI create an image. So I think that's a great way to express the difference, that it's the struggle of the creativity and the flow and everything that comes together. It's like you're something's flowing through you as you create an art school. Every art school person will tell you that. Mm. And then when you get done at the end, it's something more than you thought it could be or different than you thought it could be. So I, I love that example. I think that's a great example of the difference between creative process and prompts that create images. Oh, I didn't really have a question there. I just was like really, <laughs> that was just a really awesome way to describe it, so. No, I totally get that. That does sort of prompt a question for me, for me though. And actually I, I had a little bit of a concern. Um, we are very um, influenced by arts around us. We know what a, uh, you know what we know what a meth kingpin looks like because we know what walter white looks like mm -hmm. we know what a mysterious smile looks like because we can see the mona lisa in the back of our head mm. um i can think of the mirror's girl with pearl and how that has affected um art over the years including the gorgeous um 
black girl with pearl. Now that's what makes me think about um, bias in mm. um, artificial intelligence. Um, and then, and then for some reason, um, there always seems to it always seems to produce some form of bias, either the information it trained on or um, the way it learns to see information. Is there a concern about um, bias? Um, I don't want to use the word prejudicing, but altering people's uh, perception of, of imagery moving into the future. Absolutely. I, I'm so glad you raised the question because this is really one of the key concerns of, of the group too, is, is thinking about um, something really fundamental to algorithms and how diffusion models work is that they have to generalize. And a generalization is a stereotype, right? There's there's not, there's distinctions, right? You could stereotype an apple, that doesn't cause any problems. But if you ask it uh, the same system that is making an apple based on pictures that have been labeled apple, and you ask it about a criminal, right? What is it drawing from there? Um, if one of the classic examples, and, and folks might know this because it was a it was a Google search issue, was around the search term black girls. And if anyone knows Sophia Noble, they know that Sophia Noble went in, she used to do SEO, she's an academic now and has done some great work. Um, and she found that if you searched on Google for this search term, black girls, you got pornography, right? sorry, sensitive ears, but that's what you got. And she was shocked and appalled because a black girl is like a child and you are looking for information uh, about the health of children and you're getting the first page of Google search results was these links to these adult websites. And they had to go in and they Google had to actually go in and manually tweak the way that, that those algorithm responses came back. And now if you go, you get kind of better information, right? These systems that are trained on unfiltered data from the internet are using those exact same things that Google was doing. And so you get the same results. And if you look at Leon and you look at the underlying training data for that exact term, you will see, and I had to do this, I did, had the mistake, I didn't do it live, thank God, but I made the mistake <laughs> of going in there in order to show the data to my students that was trained on this term. And I found even though the adult content filter was on, it was still pornographic. And so that's what's going on when you generate an image using that term. And, and that's not the only one, right? There's so many of these because these machines are built to generalize on an unfiltered corpus of data from, of all places, the internet. And the internet is not a pretty place uh, and, at times. So <laughs> Indeed. we are we are trying to raise that and make people aware that when they generate these images, they have some responsibility. And, th and that's a key thing. You know, if you're making movies or you're writing books or um, doing um, video games or, or anything you design, where a human is thinking about it, right? You think about the ethics and how you're representing people. Um, and you try to do that carefully. Nobody wants to see stereotypical characters. No one wants to see racism and, and this kind of stuff, right? The algorithm can't do that. And these companies are trying as hard as, as they can. Well, <laughs> I hope they are. They're not always trying that hard to let's be blunt. Um, they are, they are, some of them are doing more than others to intervene 
not all of them are, are doing so. And the, the tools that they're developing are not quite enough. And so we need to think about what this means, not just for generative AI, but for all kinds of algorithmic systems. Um, whenever we put algorithmic systems into positions of representing people or um, making decisions on behalf of people, we're really opening up a can of worms because we're kind of factoring in a lot of the worst human impulses uh, into that data. And the result is going to reflect that. And the systems, the systems themselves can reflect that. That's important too. In a lot of ways, it's really not about fixing data. It's really about how the model processes any data you give it is going to ultimately end up generalizing and stereotyping. So we have to be careful about both sides of that. I have a, I have a question on that. Um, yeah. So one of the big uh, claims when ChatGPT came out last year was that it had solved the Nazi problem. Mm. And they, the Nazi problem, um, I'm sure you know, but for people who don't know, is a problem in machine learning where it wor learns on the worst of humanity. And yep. it says anti-Semitic or hateful things or racist things. And so they used to, we found out later, a lot of people in, I think it was Kenya for $2 a day or $2 an hour. Yeah. You right. go through the data and scrub it, right? Mm -hmm. But but text is easier. So do they do that with images that they train on? Or how do they do that with images? How would they? Could they do that? Could they do uh, that? Yeah. There's a variety of different ways that they're trying. Um, OpenAI did a very interesting thing where they do set parameters on what you can prompt. And they will also, um, they are also, it's been shown that they will inject words into your prompt in order to diversify them. Oh. Um, because for a while, if you were asking for professor, you got people who looked like me, uh, white guys with beards in lab coats, for whatever reason. I don't wear a lab coat, <laughs> but that's part of what you got back. Um, and so when people started noticing this, they also started noticing that if you asked for a um, person holding a sign, the sign would, it would be a, a person holding a sign and there would be words on the sign. And this is how they tested it to see what words were being injected uh, into the prompts. Now, obviously, if you've used OpenAI's Dolly 2, you know that the text doesn't come through 100%, but you could sort of tell it was injecting words into people's prompts. And as a result, the feedback was more diverse. So you got women in the professors, you got um, people of different skin tones in, this in the professor feedback, right? So that was one of the things they were doing. Um, but they were also making a lot of subjective uh, choices. And so one of the weird things that I found in, in some of my art experiments was you could generate images of um, men kissing men, but you could not generate pictures of women kissing women. Oh. And this is interesting to me, why they drew the boundary there. But also interesting is that they would weight contextualization. So if you literally, if you use the prompt, contemplate the universe, picture of woman, women kissing women, it would generate women kissing women, and but in this like weird starlit um, space <laughs> situation. Um, and so what happens is, even if you ask for people kissing, you will get women kissing women. But if you ask for women kissing women, it flags that as um, potentially um, flagged content. But men kissing men isn't. And so there's a lot of subjective questions to ask about who's making those decisions and why is that the decision that they have made? Um, whether or not you agree with it, I do not. But you can certainly ask why one and not the other um, or why not both or why neither, right? There's questions you can ask about who's making these decisions and how they're making these decisions. Um, 
so yeah, there's other examples too, but um, I think those are the interesting, interesting ones. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I didn't know they were adding text on the way in. I know they filter on the way out, but that's, yeah. that's fascinating. So when they say like the billion parameters, part of that is adding text to diversify on the prompt that you give it that you don't actually see is what you're saying, right? Yeah, I, I call them system level interventions. Um, that's oh, okay. where you type in something and they are doing something as a response or they're blocking you from seeing something on the response. Um, and I've, I've actually made pieces out of these system level interventions. So um, like uh, stable diffusion will blur images it thinks are pornographic. And so I would just ask for like literally abstract noise, but put a word like sensual in it. And it would <laughs> respond with these, um, like the color, like sensual, stereotypically sensual colors, like pinks and purples and like flowing shapes, but they were all abstractions, but it would still blur them as if they were pornographic. And I've made them, I've made sort of slow motion movies that I, that are called <laughs> like machine learning uh, eroticism. Um, so just to raise those types of questions about how are they filtering this and, and where are they drawing boundaries on things like that? That's well, fascinating. While half our audience is feverishly uh, searching for them now using their keyboards, the other half is curious. <laughs> where, where, where can they see this? Uh, all of my stuff is on cyberneticforests.com. That's my website. Um, and you can see a lot of the work there, including the most recent exhibition uh, of ARG, which was at DEF CON 31 uh, at the AI Village. And there's also an upcoming um, call for participation. If anyone's interested in playing with this, we're going to put out a zine of um, tricks and methods and art projects that you can make that are kind of um, circumventing or misusing algorithms in uh, fun and creative ways. So <laughs> all of that is on the website. Well, <laughs> that actually that actually uh, comes close to uh, the, the next the next question I was going to ask. You you did present at uh, DefCon 31. Uh, uh, late last month um so arg obviously gets around and you know goes out and tries to get uh conversation in, at conferences and in public is arg going to be appearing at at other conferences in the in the near future we hope so uh at the moment we are uh funded out of pocket and we are open if anyone out there is interested in changing that, we are certainly <laughs> excited to hear from you. Um, and so even the zine that we're putting together is meant to kind of go to lots of different places and bring a lot of different people in. Uh, but we are trying to find people who might be interested in, in supporting our work. Um, and if we can do that, we'll find more things that we can do, but we're certainly open to opportunities and, um, talk, you know, talking and exhibitions and all of that. So, um, nothing on the agenda after the zine, but we hope to, to keep the conversations going. Between now and then, how do interested people get a hold of you or find out more about ARC? Where, where should they go to? That would be the website, cyberneticforest.com. Uh, the first thing that they'll see there right now is that um, DEF CON exhibition, and there's info about contacting us and reaching out to us there. Um, and if you want to participate in the zine, it's cyberneticforest.com slash zine. And there's a um, little form you can fill out if you have ideas or want to get in touch, you can just fill out the form. No fun. Um, oh, I found the uh, sensitive, sensitive noise. Sensual. There you go. There you go. So it's the essential images. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry. I guess I have a, a last question, and this may well be the most important and hardest one to answer. Um, All right. Is resistance futile? 
No, look at the um, look at the WGA, right? They are proof that technology comes into our lives through friction, right? We introduce technologies. It's not just top down. It's not just tech companies giving us things. We get to say, we don't like the way this thing works. We want to change it. We want to set certain boundaries on it. And I think resistance is absolutely not futile. And it also isn't harmful to innovation. It just shapes innovation. Um, it's a way of saying, what about the rest of us, right? We can say no to things until they kind of work with us and until we can we can set our own boundaries. And I think that's really important to remember. And I'm, I'm so excited um, to see what's come out of the, the writer's strike and the kind of things that they've negotiated. It's, it's really interesting to see um, just this, the way things go with technology when people organize themselves and start to say publicly, we want a certain set of things. And really that's how technology should work. If we want technology to work for everybody, then everyone's voice should be a part of the conversation. And I'm, I'm so I really don't think resistance is futile. I think um, resistance is part and always has been part of the way we build technology. Uh, we just tend to forget it because when things work and they work the way we want them to, uh, we forget that anyone had to fight for that, uh, but we do. So hopefully people continue to, to resist Eric Salvaggio, Rochester Institute of Technology Professor and Algorithmic Resistance Research Group founder and organizer. Thank you so much for joining us in Webcology. I'm afraid, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. We've gone we've gone uh, probably just over our full hour. Um, we're gonna have to hope to hope to invite you back again and again. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the chat. It was great talking. Thank you, Eric. It was. It was I learned a lot today. Thank you. Friends, that was um, Eric Salvaggio. He's, uh, again, the uh, founder and organizer of ARG, the Algorithmic Re uh, Resistance Research Group. Type that into, into Google, look them up, check out their message, and uh, more importantly, check out the conversation that they're trying to check out and think about the conversation they're trying to generate. Um, maybe you want to take part in it yourself by, by getting involved with ARG, or maybe you want to take part in it yourself just by having the conversation with your friends and other creators. Uh, Christine, we've um, we're done. We got we got to get out of here. There's another show coming up right behind us in the studio. Uh, that was a fun, eh? It was fun, and I did learn a lot today. I thought I knew a, a bit about the uh, how all that worked, but there's a lot I did not know. So it was great, and I hope our listeners find it as interesting. I think they will. Oh, I'm sure they are. I'm sure yeah. they are. It's a fun adventure. Anyway, until next week, which incidentally is my 55th birthday. Happy um, birthday. Thank you. This is Jim Hedger from Digital Always Media. On behalf of Christine Schackinger from Sites Without Walls, you've been listening to Webcology, recorded live to podcast on the uh, 28th of September, 2023. Stay well, rank well, be kind to each other, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.